The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. I invite you to turn on your devices or turn to your Bibles. Acts chapter 1, verse 7. That's what we're reading this morning, the second Sunday of Advent. Acts chapter 1, verse 7. I'll begin at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Let's pray together. Father, I pray this morning that these words would would ring in our hearts, not for you, not for you, but that our hearts would be quick to hear the words that are for us, that we would see doors shut that need to be closed, that we would not fixate what you have already fixed, but that we would see with the eyes of our heart what you have for us, what you've done for us, what you've called us to, what you've called us to be. I pray, O God, that you would work and move by your Spirit in your Word and that our hearts would hail Jesus the Word made flesh, that our hearts would hope again in all that you are for us and all that you will bring to us, all that you've done, all that you're doing, all that you will do. God, help our hope to be fixed purely and completely there. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the second Sunday in Advent. If you were with us last week, you might remember we said Advent is simply a word that means coming. And when we celebrate Advent as Christians, it's a time for us when we prepare our hearts to rightly celebrate the coming of Christ. And what that means is not four weeks of celebrating Christmas. Four weeks of looking back at what he's done. We said that we live in between the two advents. Christ has come. Christ will come again. And in that space between the two advents, we have much to mourn. We have much to lament. We have much that's broken. Much that's confusing. Sin permeating everywhere. Doubts and perplexities are in our hearts as we look at a world that is broken, a world that sometimes does not make sense. We wait. We long. We mourn. We cry. We want more. 
And we see that with all that's broken, only Jesus can fix it. And when Jesus comes again, he will make all things new. And so we wait. We wait. Advent is a time when we join the groaning of all creation. We join it. And we long for that day in hope when the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption into the glory of the freedom of the children of God. We say, we wait. We know it's coming. It's not now. So we mourn in this in-between time, remembering His promise. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. And in the midst of that, last week we looked at the question of the kingdom. Lord, is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it, is it now? Everything that we've been longing for, hoping for, waiting for, is it now? And you remember Jesus had to get out the red pen and correct these misplaced expectations, the the meaning that didn't line up with what restoration means, what Israel means, and even today, what what does now mean? You see, the question this week is when? How long do we have to wait? It's a question that we're very familiar with in 2020. Some of you haven't been physically able to gather with us since March. We've been waiting, wondering, how long? How long do we have to wear masks? How long are things going to be shut down? How, How long is it going to be now before there's a vaccine, before things open up to some semblance of normalcy? It is a question that we're familiar with. When? It's a question that every parent knows well on any journey when their kids say, are we there yet? And you don't hear it once. You hear it many times. Are we there yet? The disciples are asking the question as we're on the journey to the celestial city with many toils and snares and difficulties and tears, are we there yet? We get to hear Jesus' answer. He says, no. You can all remember that answer. No, not there yet. But he says more. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. There's two points. You can see them right here. The timing is not for you to know. It's fixed by the Father alone. Point one, the, the timing is not for you to know. Point two, it is fixed by the Father alone. Number one, timing is not for you to know. You can see it right there. It is not for you to know times or seasons. 
When Jesus refers to times or seasons, it is very difficult to know precisely what he's talking about because no one really knows the precise distinction between these two terms. Times, the Greek word for that, refers to, a, can refer to a specific period of time, moment of time. And seasons, the Greek word there, can mean a, a certain interval of time. And you notice that both of these words are in the plural. Not just a time or a season, times and seasons. Fixed points of reference, moments, and intervals of time. It seems like the question that Jesus is addressing here is not just when will the beginning of the restoration of the kingdom be, but the steps in the process of development of bringing it to completion. What's the map going to be like? Is it going to develop now in in these points and over this time frame? And Jesus says it so clearly to them, this is not your jurisdiction. This is not for you to know. This is not a question that you can have answered. You not only don't know it, you can't know it. This is not a door that you can open, that you should be knocking on, that you should be trying to peer through the the keyhole. You're you're not going to know it. You can't know it. It is, you need to get out of the timing business altogether. It's not for you. So the disciples open a door with a question, and Jesus slams it shut. Not for you to know. Why? rest of verse 7. It is fixed by the Father alone. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. So he says it's, it's not for you to know because it belongs to the Father alone. This is His jurisdiction. It, could there be a stronger way to slam the door then between Acts 1-7 and Mark 13-32, when you put these two verses together, could there be a stronger slamming of the door than this? It, it matches exactly what Jesus told them already, Mark 13-32, but concerning that day or that hour, not just the day it's going to happen, but the hour that it's going to happen, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. You can't know. This is something not even the angels in heaven know. You can't know it on earth. They can't know it in heaven. Not even the Son, who has all authority in heaven and earth, can know this. So why are you then trying to know more than Jesus can know. Just slamming this shut and saying, be on guard, keep awake, for you don't know when the time will come. You don't know, so you always have to be ready. You can't have this answer. Not even the angels, not even the Son, 
So stop. Stop focusing. Stop fixating on what the Father alone has already fixed. And it is surprising at one level that the disciples never ask again. They never bring it up again. It has been so decisively shut and locked and deadbolted that the disciples, who don't tend to get things quickly, they got it. They got it. Locked door. Don't ask because you can't know. And just like it's surprising that the disciples got it after Jesus needed to speak so clearly, isn't it even more shocking that throughout the history of the church, we don't get it? How many times over church history do you see this, where it's almost as they say, you can't quite know, but you can predict. And we can mislead people. How many times? There was a New England farmer, William Miller, 18. 43, studied his Bible and determined that Christ would return April 23rd, 1843. A whole group follows him, sells their possessions, won't need these after April 23rd. Obviously, the prediction was wrong. The so-called Millerites disbanded. Closer to our time, Pat Robertson guaranteed the end of the world would be at the end of 1982. Someone wrote a book, 88 Reasons Jesus is Returning in 1988 after studying the Feast of Trumpets. Harold Camping, September 1994. Just now you can see someone saying we're clearly in the sixth seal of Revelation and the end of the world will happen here in 2020, when all, all of these predictions are coming from people studying their Bibles, and I wonder, did you not bother to study Acts 1-7? Did you not bother to study Mark 13-32? As your pastor, please hear me. Anybody here, anybody listening to the sound of my voice, do not write books like this. Do not write 2,020 reasons why Jesus is returning in 2020. Maybe write a book that says 2,020 reasons why you can't know when Jesus is coming again. How many verses clearly do we need? How much forthright truth from Jesus do we need? You can't know. So stop it. Jesus said, Luke 12, verse 40, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Just feel with me how merciful this correction is. What a, what a stinging answer at one level. Asking a question, feeling it slammed, the door slammed in your face. You don't know and you can't know. But how merciful for Jesus to say, let me just take this question off your plate. You're worried and anxious and confused about so many things. Let's just take this 
away. Move it to the side. And I'm not just saying you can't know. I'm saying the Father knows. And the Father knows best. So rather than ask your question about timing, trust the Father's sense of timing. It's meant, in other words, to be freeing. How many times do you have something that you know you're supposed to fix, and if you're anything like me and you try to fix it, it often ends up worse? So you have more problems than when you began? How freeing for Jesus to say, it's already fixed. Hear the comfort in these words. The Father's already taken care of it. He knows better than you. Trust Him. So, why spend a whole sermon on this verse? The, the whole point of the verse is to say, Here are, here's the door that I'm going to slam shut so that you can focus on this door that's open. Verse 8. This isn't what you're supposed to know. This is what you're supposed to do. So why not just move on to verse 8 and say, okay, let's then talk about what we should do. The answer for why we're not going to do that is because it's not just one door that needs to be shut. We find lots of other ways to open similar doors to this, and Jesus wants us to shut them all so that the one in verse 8 can be left open. So that's what I want to do. There's so many ways to get this verse wrong, and I just want to correct them before we get to verse 8. Let's pause and remember how often Jesus had to transform and correct the flawed, misplaced expectations of the disciples. They didn't know where to put things. They didn't know how to arrange things. They didn't know what the expectation should be. And one of the problems was with their reading of Scripture. For example, when Jesus talks about the kingdom, he most often talks about the mystery of the kingdom. But it's not immediately clear that there's a plot twist that's happened. When everyone would read verses about the coming of the Messiah, they would read it as one event. And the mystery of the kingdom is that there would be not one advent, but two advents. And so, for example, when you're reading Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in Nazareth. He opens the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And we think he just finished his thought, read Isaiah, now he begins to preach. He stops at a comma. If you go back to Isaiah 61... Not like there were commas in the original language. We put them there because it's, it's there. 
the thought hasn't even been completed yet. When you read Isaiah 61, verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. Everyone read that together. When the Messiah comes, year of favor, canceled debts for God's people, vengeance for God's enemies. All happening at the same time. And here's a plot twist as you're reading the Old Testament. Those two things are actually two events separated by thousands of years. Nobody expected that. Nobody expected year of jubilee, canceling of debts, time of mercy would be extended, 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 and second coming would be day of vengeance of our God. It's as if you're seeing something, the difference between seeing something from a distance and seeing something up close. You ever had this experience? You're you're driving, for example, in Montana. It looks like here's a huge mountain. You get up closer and you realize, oh, those are two mountains. And they're, they're pretty near together. And you drive a little closer and you realize those are miles apart. That's the way everybody was reading the Old Testament, reading these prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. They're reading it from a distance and thinking when He comes, He's going to do all of this. And when He came and and didn't do all of that, people like John the Baptist from prison said, are you the one? Are we supposed to wait for somebody else? All of that. Releasing the captives part? Like I'm in prison? Did we miss this? And Jesus is coming and saying, no, no, no. There's two advents, not one. What are we supposed to do with that? With that kind of plot twist? Here's what I want to do. I want to speak directly for a moment to those who are not followers of Jesus. Because just like Christians have used this time period of delay to spend a lot of time trying to name the day that he's going to come back, a lot of non-Christians have used this delay to mock the second coming of Jesus. It's amazing that the Bible doesn't just speak to Christians doesn't even just speak to skeptics, it speaks even to scoffers. One of these disciples in Acts 1-7 who was there later addressed this very question. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2, remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing following their own desires. If you're a scoffer, so scoffing at the idea, it's been 2,000 years. This isn't a delay. This is a failure. He's not coming. If you want to look at this and, and mock this, the Bible has a word for you, actually. It says, uh, we see you and we were expecting you. That you would come with your scoffing. And the amazing point here 
is the Bible would be saying, while you are doubting the prophecy of His coming, please be aware that your mocking of prophecy is actually a fulfillment of prophecy. Said this would come. And then he speaks to the substance of it in 2 Peter 3, verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And this is after some 30 years of a delay. Where's this promise of His coming these 30 years? How amazingly relevant when we say 2,000 years. And Peter responds. Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The first response is to put us in our place and say, are you surprised that God doesn't count time the same way that you do? When you look at it's been 2,000 years, God says it's been two days. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so much greater are His thoughts than our thoughts and His ways than our ways. We cannot bring our tiny, finite measurements to Him and expect that they're going to be the same measurements that He uses when He weighs the mountains in a scale. Like we weigh a bunch of bananas going to be different. And then he gives us the reason for the delay. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. When we scoff and say, I see no good reason for this delay, God says, I have a very good reason. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, namely, scoffers. But He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants you to know this morning, if you're not a Christian, and if you're tempted to just Look at this delay and just scoff it away. God is saying to you, don't twist what's happening here using this delay as an argument of unbelief to mock me and say I'm not coming back and treat me like a fairy tale or a fable or a myth. The delay is for you. The delay is because I want you to repent. The delay is because I don't want you in everlasting torment. The delay is to be read not as failure, but as patience. The delay is meant to lead you to repentance, to see, look how patient God is with me in all of my failures. He's not going to end history here because he's waiting for me. Don't see the delay and think, unfaithful. See it and say, patient. 
Today can be the day of salvation. Today can be the moment that you see your Father's merciful heart towards you, patiently waiting and saying, today. If you come to Jesus, who came into this world to save sinners, his very name, he will save his people from their sins. You can turn away from scoffing, turn to the merciful, patient heart of God given in Christ in the gospel to wash away all of your sins, receive you forever. And you will rejoice that God has waited so long so that you would belong to him. Let me speak to believers for a moment. I've already mentioned the the comfort of these words that the Father knows, that the Father knows best. I also want you to receive the warning of these words. And the warning is this. If you focus and fixate where you're not supposed to, you're going to miss where you really should be focusing like trying to jam the $12 bulb into the landing gear confirmation light and the plane crashes. Get your eyes off the landing gear light onto the actual landing gear. This is what Elizabeth Elliot said. I found it so convicting. Today is mine. Tomorrow is none of my business. If I peer anxiously into the fog of the future, I will strain my spiritual eyes so that I will not see clearly what is required of me now. Some of you are straining. Somehow thinking, if I can just get ahead of this thing, If I can just be ready for whatever's coming, if I just have a a good preparation plan, if, if I can just kind of figure it out with my own resourcefulness getting ready, you're, you're straining and not realizing you don't have to trust in some better future version of yourself or better future version of circumstances. You trust in the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he has things for you today. He doesn't have tomorrow for you right now. Mercies will be there when that day comes. Mercies are here now for what Jesus has for us now. And so this is a warning to close all of those doors so that the door of now would be wide open. And please receive the explanation from this verse that should form your expectations. We can all identify a gap between what we experience and what we expect. Last week we called attention to that gap. This week we're going to name it. We're going to call it out and name it. Even though Christ has come, we still live in a fallen world. 
So many reasons to lose heart. So many reasons to lament. So many things this world is throwing at us. Sickness, pandemic, sin, suffering, betrayal, abuse, disappointment, loss of job, loss of health, loss of friends, loss of loved ones, difficult family situations, and even death. But because Christ has come, we're not standing on sinking sand. We're looking at all of these things knowing that, that yes, there is a day coming when all of these things will be gone and we long for that day. But right now, in the door called now, we are standing on solid ground rejoicing in what Christ has already done. Second coming, yes, He's going to wipe away all tears. First coming, He washes away all sin. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Has defeated death. He's showing us that I am here for you now. In the gospel, what we have now to live now is the understanding that he paid the price for all of our sins, giving us a perfect righteousness because he suffered a perfect condemnation so that you could be free from the voice of all condemnation. You know exactly what I'm talking about. So many of you that I know that I've talked to and many that I haven't, we know that you can have a cumulative condemnation of people speaking into your life, speaking condemnation, speaking harshness to you, saying things to you that just cut you and wound you like nothing else can. How many parents have said things to you? How many friends have said things to you? How many times have you been accused by the accuser? And there's this onslaught of condemnation into your life. Just put on repeat. And your inner talk reflects it. And you say things to yourself that you wouldn't never say to anyone else. This says that Christ has come, you can actually live in the now without the weight of condemnation because when you hear the voice of anyone that's spoken condemnation to you, when you hear the flapping wings of every devil that you've known, you can say, not only is the timing of that day not my jurisdiction, but accusation is not your jurisdiction because condemnation is not your jurisdiction. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is His alone. Therefore, you don't have to listen. When the voice of condemnation comes to you on repeat again and again and again, that would keep you from living now? Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, who rose again, is seated at the right hand of God, and who intercedes for you. The only one right now that could speak a word against you, for whom it is his jurisdiction, says there's no condemnation. If you're in me, you're free. The last thing that you need to be doing, 2020 is hard enough. 
than trying to also have the weight of accusation and condemnation upon you, bending you down so you can't even look to the now that God has for you. Oh, Christian, be free. Look at every sin nailed to the cross, the record of debt gone, moved from you as far as the east is from the west so that you can live the now. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Hallelujah. What a friend. Saving, helping, keeping. He is with me till the end so we can live now. Shut the door to all the false voices of condemnation and have the door wide open of his forever acceptance of you. Here it is. We come to the moment of communion. These truths help us, don't they, with our present sufferings. We don't believe in the prosperity gospel that says, if you just had enough faith, you wouldn't have the problems you have. No, we we understand. This is a time of tears. This is a time of sickness. It's not just unbelievers that get COVID. It's not just unbelievers that are in the hospital. not just unbelievers that get cancer. Not just unbelievers that have problems in their family or problems at work or problems anywhere. We are in this age between the two advents, and we understand we're not expecting too much from the age to come to be here now, but we're also not cynical that somehow we're on our own because we have the gospel. We have the Holy Spirit. We have forgiveness of sins. We have, I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Thank God we have his presence, and thank God it's enough. But thank God it's not all that's coming. There's more coming. So as we turn to communion, here's what I want you to do. As you think about the bread and the cup. What does this mean? That in the gospel, the good news is that Christ has done everything that it takes to purchase our full and forever enjoyment of God. That we have a seat at the table, and one day the table will be transformed so that in the new heavens and new earth we we drink together not just with our sins washed away, but our tears wiped away. Everything else that could harm us, wound us, disappoint us, gone. What that means is that these things belong to us now. When I was a kid, I'm still old enough to remember, like, Kmart, and still old enough to remember Layaway. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Parents probably will. I remember what it was like to be a kid and to have my parents, I pick out a toy and then my parents take it and take it to the 
layaway department where it was set aside, laid away for me. I knew it was mine. Even though I didn't have it in my hands, I knew that it was mine. And so I was set free in my imagination to know this is my toy so that when I had the, the Night Rider, uh, some of you won't even know, the talking car before there was cars one, two, and three, and 200. Now there was a car in my childhood that, that spoke. It was like a black Firebird, a Trans Am. There was a car there, and it had a ramp, and there was a, a semi, and there was a, a, a tearaway section in the middle of the semi where you could ramp the car right through it. I went over that in my head so many times. I know the toy is coming, it is mine. It's like the, the boy that goes to his younger sister and says, hey, can I borrow some money? And she says, oh, how much do you need? And he says, how much do you have? She gets out her little girl purse, takes out $3, and she says, I have $4. And the brother looks at her and says, you're so stupid. You don't even know how to count. Look at this. One, two, three, not four. And she got indignant, as only a sister can. I have four. Daddy gave me three this morning, and he promised when he comes tonight, he's going to give me another one. I have four. Daddy, don't lie. Do you see? Our Father doesn't lie. All of these things that are coming, we already have them. They're ours. The difference is I knew the toy that was coming and I would imagine what it was like in my mind. What has already been purchased for us is so much greater than anything we can possibly imagine. But when we look at this fallen world and everything that goes wrong here, I want you to remember, promised by the Father, bought by the blood of the Son, we have everything that our Father has planned for us. It is ours now. As real as the juice and the cracker is so real and better is everything that God has for us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be able to say no condemnation. Now I dread Jesus and all that is in him is mine. God, give us a grace to celebrate all that you've done and purchasing all that you've promised. Let us say by faith, oh, it is mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. 
but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.